From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, tutors, educators, and agencies that place certified teachers say they're seeing a spike in demand for their services after Governor Gavin Newsom ordered campuses remain closed in counties with high COVID-19 rates. Some families who can afford it are seeking private teachers to augment remote learning. Others are looking to hire teachers for small group instruction of kids from multiple families in so-called learning pods. But some experts fear these moves will widen the education gap between high and low income students and question their safety in a pandemic. We explore school pods next on Forum. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Governor Newsom's order that school campuses remain closed in counties with high coronavirus infection rates means millions of California students will begin the school year learning remotely. Some parents have responded by joining with other families and setting up their own learning pods with hired teachers. Others are seeking private tutors to augment the lessons their kids struggled through when schools abruptly shut down in spring. But some parents and public education advocates worry these arrangements will exacerbate existing learning inequities. We want to hear from you. What do you think of this emerging trend? Are you forming a learning pod or hoping to? Why or why not? Joining us first is KQED reporter Sarah Hosseini. You have been talking with parents looking to do this. Who are they and what have you found are some of the main drivers? Well, um, I've been talking to parents um, throughout the Bay Area. A lot of moms, um, of course, take this role on trying to figure out what to do now that schools are closed um, in so many of our counties. Um, I think they're really feeling overwhelmed by the prospect of a repeat of last spring. Many of them, um, you know, were trying to work at home while overseeing their lessons and just don't want to, they just can't handle it again. Uh, I spoke to a mom of a nine-year-old boy who was in Berkeley Public School. Um, she actually founded and runs the Berkeley Forest Preschool. Her name is Liana Chavarin. So when the shutdown happened, she's scrambling to try to figure out how to keep her staff employed while overseeing his uh, virtual lessons. And she even tried to get like relatives to help him out, tutor on, you know, virtually tutor him. But overall said it was just, uh, it didn't work well for them. It was a disaster. And now that she's back to work full-time outside the home, she says she has no other option but to try to uh, create a pod for him. And um, she's actually expanding her preschool to create those sorts of pods for kids, older kids. And she's getting emails already from people willing to pay double tuition just to get in. Um, and interestingly, she actually disenrolled him. So even if they do end up going back to school, uh, she just says for her child, it would be too much emotionally. And and she's also worried about getting sick as a first-generation um, Mexican and indigenous single mom who we know, um, you know, people of color seem to fare worse when they, when they do get sick with coronavirus. So, uh, yeah, a lot to unpack So here. she disenrolled her son, you mean, from his existing public school? That's right. Mm -hmm. So we've been hearing about how these learning pods have formed through friend groups or extended networks, but it sounds like you found that they're not all that way, both with the person that you talked to with Berkeley Forest School, but also some other examples. Yeah, there was another mom I talked to in El Cerrito who's a good example of that. Her kid was actually an incoming kindergartner. And so when the news hit that the county's schools would remain closed until further notice, 
she just said, um, like I mentioned before, like, I just can't spend another year ignoring my kid while I'm working on the laptop. And so I'm lucky enough to have a job, of course, but uh, she's, she started to try to find alternatives. So she's already interviewed with uh, another family about joining a pod. But, um, you know, to me, she admitted, like, I don't, I don't think they're going to want to be, I don't think they're going to accept us. And I, and I was like, why? And she said, well, they've just been really, really strictly sheltering in place. And, and maybe they don't think that the situation would be safe enough. And, you know, even though her kids wear masks and do all of the required things, you know, this, this other family had only left to go to the grocery store and nothing more, no hikes or anything. So, mm. um, you know, her PTA is actually helping to uh, uh, coordinate and introduce parents like her who, you know, they don't know other kids in the kindergarten yet, of course. So they're, they're actually helping to facilitate that so that people can connect for these pods. And Sarah, before I let you go, any other reasons parents want to do this that we haven't hit on yet? Um, I think, you know, some people are interested. There's different types. I mean, I think some people are interested in sort of a child care trade or just a child, you know, nanny share type situation to give their kids some sort of interaction with peers. Others want a more of a teacher type to help facilitate the school's lessons. Um, and I think like the PTA I mentioned, I think some districts and PTAs are sort of marginally, you know, trying to help people connect to sort of try to keep the elementary school community alive and, and get thinking, get people thinking about how to take care of all students until in-person school reopens. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for your reporting and for coming on. Thanks, Nina. I appreciate it. We're joined now by Janelle Scott, professor in the Graduate School of Education and the African-American Studies Department at UC Berkeley. Good morning, Janelle Scott. Good morning, Nina. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Roman Slavinsky, Director of Student Success A-plus Tutoring in Los Angeles. And so, Roman, we were hearing from our reporter, Sarah Hosseini, that there are a lot of parents who are looking to do these learning pod type setups. Um, we're also hearing that agencies and educators for hire are saying that they're seeing big spikes in demand. I know you serve Los Angeles, so are you seeing the same thing with your organization? Yes, we are. As soon as we heard that LA Unified was closing, there was definitely a rush of concerned parents calling, finding out what possible solutions could they arrange for their kids to deal with the current situation. And what kind of arrangements are they asking for from, from your company, basically? Um, so it's been a wide range of different things that parents have been looking for. Definitely a lot of it has been like a combination of daycare with education because as it was previously mentioned, the parents need to need to go to work, want to go to work, need to get things done. And they had lots of trials and tribulations with sitting side by side with their kids as they were doing distance learning last semester. So what we've noticed is that a lot there's a big uncertainty in regards to what the school day would actually look like this semester. So that's where the questions the parents' primary concerns have been of how they can best support their kids, considering that they are going to be enrolled in distance learning again. And, and so are you finding that they want private instructors for small groups more often, one-on-one -on -one tutoring? And what generally are the costs for these kinds of services from A-plus tutoring? Correct. So for in-person instruction, we're only doing small groups because we believe that the socialization and the motivation component for kids is what's primarily missing in the current educational scene. 
So we're asking them to, the pods are comfort level from a safety perspective as no more than five students in one pod. We'd like the students to be in the same grade so that we can do our best to support the curriculum that they're gonna be presented. Our services, what we're doing is we're coming in after the Zoom instruction. We want the students to be able to attend the classroom with their teachers and then we would come in to augment and to support and to facilitate the learning. In regards to pricing, it depends on the number of students in a pod and how many days a week they're looking for it. But right now, for the most part, it's roughly looking around like $20 a student an hour as something that we can accommodate to families to make sure that we have one teacher that exclusively works with their pod because safety is our primary concern. Yes, you mentioned safety. And with the regulations from county health departments about people from different uh, groups or families getting together, how are you dealing with the safety recommendations and, and requirements? So, of course. So we're following all of the CDC guidelines to the best of our understanding of it. We're asking that all of the pods have to happen in an outdoor space. Uh, we're doing temperature checks. There's sanita sanitary things that we're doing, wiping the surfaces, making sure kids have their own supplies that nobody else can touch. And the primary thing is we're making it exclusively so that one teacher that's coming to a pod won't be going to other people's homes because that would be just counterproductive to why we're not going to school right now. Um, well, Janelle Scott, I want to bring you into the conversation. And so we were talking about sort of some of the main drivers, but I'm wondering if you could broaden it out and talk about the conditions that you see families reacting to here. Sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, it, it goes without saying, but we'll, let's say it anyway, that, you know, parents are facing uh, decidedly suboptimal conditions. Um, and I think where we are is that parents are really making choices um, that are about what is the least worst choice, right? Um, that that's the choice that um, in light of the announcement that many, so many schools uh, will have to go virtual at least to begin in the fall. Um, we also know that the situation is fluid, right? It's highly dependent on um, the evolution of COVID-19 and, um, and there's still so much we don't know about transmission uh, and safety in congregate settings. And so that just creates incredible challenges uh, for parents, but also frankly for school districts and for county offices of education and for the state uh, to make plans. Um, and so this uh, instability, this inability uh, to plan um, more than just a, a few weeks or even a month at a time uh, puts working parents um, and children and communities really um, at a, in a deep sense of precarity um, coming out of a spring in which we all experience that already. Um, I think, you know, we also have um, had during shelter in place and over the summer, um, you know, the a summer of uprisings against racial injustice. Um, and so we are also reckoning um, in our communities in this country with racial inequality. And so I think this sort of instability um, inability to plan for our fall, um, for those of us who have children in schools, is also landing on these, uh, this reckoning and um, calling for people to look in the mirror and to address their own role in perpetuating inequality. And so I think those are the sort of very difficult um, choices that are in front of parents, that are in front of school systems, um, and in front of our state right now, um, as people try and figure out how to pivot 
um, in light of the news that schooling will be virtual this fall. Well, we're joined by Allison Collins now. She's commissioner for the San Francisco Board of Education. Thanks for joining us, Allison Collins. Thank you so much for having this, um, and thank you, thank you for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate you being on. And uh, when you started hearing about these learning pods, about families getting together to try to either hire teachers for their kids or or private tutors, it sounds like the equity implications really came up quickly for you uh, because you put them into a Facebook post that that went viral. And I, I want to read just a little from that post, which began with a series of questions. Who is present in these spaces? Who is missing? Who benefits? Who is excluded? How does this elevate and support anti-racism, integration, public education? What narratives do pods reinforce about public education? In this time of crisis, how do these actions support families with the greatest need? Families struggling with food insecurity, housing insecurity, single parents, parents of students with disabilities, parents of students learning English, parents of undocumented students. So, so clearly, what kinds of concerns do you think the impact of these pods will have based on the questions that you you asked? Well, I think it's it's actually really interesting because I I think we've all been really surprised by how rapidly this conversation has developed, and I think with the announcement of what schools are actually doing, you know, we we're living in a a, a crisis that of epic proportions, and families are scrambling. Um, without a real safety net. And so it makes sense that families would be reaching out to support one another because that's what we do. And, um, and that's a beautiful thing. And so, but in those conversations, what, was, what I was hearing from other families is there's all of those questions. And, and um, over time in, in these conversations, I think what really came out is that one of the reasons why we value public education is that it brings us all together and it brings us together in ways that we, we just don't do normally. You know, my daughters have friends whose parents speak Chinese or they can be, you know, in a classroom with students that learn differently or, you know, are, live in public housing or, you know, we, and, and that's a beautiful thing. And, and so I think one of the things that parents were struggling with was wanting to support one another, wanting to support each other in, and a lot of times they're school communities, but because t teachers aren't, aren't in, in session right now, schools aren't in session, they, what, what it kind of rose up out of that concern was in a lot of ways, schools organize that. That's an institution that kind of organizes it equitably. And I think um, when the other commenter mentioned, you know, with the PTAs, I, I've been speaking with a lot of PTA parents. And one of the beautiful things about the post was it's actually allowed folks to, um, it's a kind of a way to guide questions in terms of their communities. Um, but I also wanna to say too, you know, the public education piece is, is, it's not just about segregation, it's also about the institution of public education and, and the, the work, whatever we're doing right now is a foundation for what's gonna go forward. And I think there is a real concern that we could lose something and not just lose, you know, our interconnected diverse school communities, but we could also lose, lose public education as an institution. Because as you see with even the conversations that are coming up now, all these market-based solutions are coming up. And um, the NAACP yesterday just recently sued DeVos because she's trying to redirect funds from um, public education to private schools. 
And these pods are in some ways becoming like micro charter schools. And it's, it's, it's really paving the way for the dismantling of this wonderful, beautiful institution that, as I said, brings these um, school communities together. And when you say that you have reached out and gotten some interesting reactions from PTA and really thinking about uh, the role that these pods could play, does that mean that you're seeing that people are saying, yes, I, I see your point, Allison Collins, and are there ways that we could do this that would minimize that kind of impact? Yes. Yeah, that's actually been really beautiful. And, and I'm getting, you know, I'm getting DMs from Indiana even and, you know, Florida, all over the country, people are struggling with this. And um, at the same time, people are sharing ways that they're trying to figure it out. And in San Francisco, because we have such a strong um, parent community, we've been really invested in partnering with families and they do it on their school sites. I've been connecting with families across the district and we are connecting together to share ideas. And I'm hearing, um, I mean, a lot of this also, I think it was mentioned before, these pods are really parent support and they take a lot of different forms. Some people need childcare. Some people don't need childcare. They just need help logging in and making sure their kids aren't wiggling out of their chairs when they're doing distance learning. There's a lot of different needs families have. And so, um, they are looking a lot of different ways, but the key factor is how can we connect parents in their parent communities in, in ways that also connect them with teachers and educators, you know, who, so that, you know, whatever, so that it, the cart doesn't get, beyond, you know, too far ahead. We want to make sure that um, we're doing this in unity with educators who also know, you know, like guidelines for education. They know what they're teaching. They also can follow public and, you know, safety guidelines, mandatory reporting. I mean, all of those, you know, we need our educators in this conversation. And I think one of the hardest parts right now is parents want to, you know, they want to take action and our, and our teachers and our administrators are just coming online in the next week or so. So what do you think parents should do? Like what responsibility do you feel like they have in terms of trying to maintain or help to further yeah. create so a I, more robust public education system. I think system. the key right now is reach out to your school principal, reach out to other PTA leaders. You know, these are existing structures that were there before. And I think parents, I am, like I said, I am so grateful for parents across the city that are reaching out and they're, what they're, they're kind of getting ready for when um, principals and teachers come in. One school, you know, what they're, they're kind of laying out a framework for is, is telling families, let's wait to connect families. Let's create the structure. So they've created a structure of maybe these mini pods within a classroom, but they want teachers to, to organize those classrooms for them. And then it's something that parents could opt into so that, so that they're really, what they're doing is kind of setting up support networks. For families and communication networks to help teachers, you know, make sure that they're reaching out to each and every parent. And then parents then can co-create solutions that meet their needs at their school, you know, at their school site. But they're doing it, like I said, um, in, in partnership with, you know, principals and schools so that when, you know, if we're lucky enough, when schools come back online, you know, we don't have all these different systems. And I think that's even, you know, the segregation issue was kind of that problem was parents were, were trying to put together pods. And then in some places they were asking schools, once these kids are together, can they be in the same class? And then we're getting into tracking and all the things that we've tried to, you know, get rid of. So hmm. we really have to do this in partnership 
with our schools and also with our CBOs like Boys and Girls Club and you know, the YMCA who can also help us expand our capacity so that families that don't have the means to pay for things, you know, they can also participate with that added um, support. Roman Savinsky, are you working with pri- uh, pub- the public school district as you are further responding to parents' needs? Yes. So I'm a former LAUSD teacher. I taught science for nine years. So we're definitely keeping open contact with the teachers. We look at ourselves as we're just one part of the piece of a round table of a kid's education. There's no sides. We want to work with the teachers. We want to work with the parents and with the school to make sure that what we're doing is supporting and providing for an experience that would allow the kids to glide back into normal when normal does happen. And are you asking parents to make sure that they're not disenrolling in the public school system or at least not trying to use this as a replacement? 100%. We are not providing pods to anybody that has disenrolled from their public school. Our program is to support, augment, and facilitate the public school education. No matter what kids have to become more familiar with online learning, especially the younger ones, because by the time they graduate high school, there will be a large portion of things online. Like Kids won't be turning in homework on paper ever again, in my opinion. It will all be uploaded from home and then into a teacher's inbox eventually. So we have to help the kids grow. Roman Slavinsky is Director of Student Success at A-Plus Tutoring in Los Angeles. We're talking also with Allison Collins, Commissioner at the San Francisco Board of Education. Janelle Scott is also with us. She's Professor in the Graduate School of Education and the African American Studies Department at UC Berkeley. And we're talking with you, our listeners, about families hiring tutors or teachers to set up learning pods or do private education in response to distance learning, which so many of California students will be doing when the school year begins. Are you considering a learning pod? Do you have concerns about them? What are your reactions to some of the questions and concerns that you're hearing? Give us a call 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The prospect of months more of campus closures and remote-only learning is prompting some parents to search for private tutors or teachers to come to their homes, sometimes in so-called pods with other families, to oversee their kids' distance learning. But with the options available only to those who can afford them, it's raising concerns about further exacerbating rampant inequalities in public education. We're talking about this with Allison Collins, Commissioner at the San Francisco Board of Education, Roman Slavinsky, a Director of Student Success and a teacher, former teacher in LAUSD, also with A-plus tutoring in Los Angeles, and Janelle Scott, Professor in the Graduate School of Education and the African American Studies Department at UC Berkeley. You, our listeners, are also invited to join. Tell us your thoughts about learning pods, questions, concerns, 866-733-6786. Again, is the number 866-733-6786. You can email us at forum at kqed.org, or you can post your questions on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum. 
Nicole writes, I fully understand why parents are wanting to join learning pods. However, I implore the parents to also harness their fear and anger and demand political change. Schools need to receive billions of dollars to create safe infrastructure to get kids back in school. Districts also need resources to hire more teachers and assistants so we can have smaller class sizes. This can only come from federal help. Janelle Scott, I'm wondering if you could just, we've touched on some of these, but just tease out why it is so difficult for families to be able to access, create, or afford a learning pod. Like what are some of the conditions that families are in, especially with the pandemic raging? Well, so I think, you know, many of the inequality in terms of access issues have been touched upon in our conversation. Um, you know, as was just mentioned, um, families who can afford to pay for supplemental services uh, represent, you know, a very rarefied strata of the overall public education community, right? And so automatically, if you have to expend um, additional resources at a time when, you know, many people have lost employment or have, have um, experienced employment precarity, housing precarity, and, and food insecurity, these are ongoing conditions. And so the ability to spend, um, family resources are is just not enjoyed equitably. Um, California has its own resource issues as well, right? And so, you know, in the, the Sacramento Bee just reported this week that um, in order to actually meet the needs of just online schooling, virtual schooling for the fall, California needs to uh, secure nearly 700,000 more computers and devices and 300,000 more Wi-Fi hotspots, right? So just basic accessibility of um, online um, opportunities is, is still not enjoyed equitably across the state. And we know that these inequities are concentrated in particular communities and neighborhoods. And to meet these needs, the, the estimate is at $500 million. Um, and so these are you know, significant impediments then um, for who gets to participate and how. Um, and so I think those are some of the issues there. Um, in terms of workplace flexibility, uh, you know, the, the degree to which you have flexibility to do work at home and provide supports for children um, varies uh, according to the kind of work one does. And so, and the age um, your children are. So younger children need much more help um, and supports and different kinds of supports. Neuroatypical children, children with disabilities need particular kinds of supports. And families have varying degrees of resources to provide those supports alone um, or to access pods that would provide those particular targeted supports. And so uh, the equity issues um, are deep and broad. Yes. I was also struck when Sarah, our reporter, was earlier saying that she interviewed someone who interviewed to be in a pod. And it made me wonder, you know, if you're a family that has been able to work from home, limit exposure to the virus, would you you know, would somebody trying to get into your pod who, say, was an essential worker or had a lot of interaction with the public be accepted into the pod? Because, of course, there are concerns about um, about the pandemic, about the coronavirus. I mean, Angela, this listener writes, I so want my kids to hang out and learn with other kids. So the idea of learning pods sounds good, but I worry friends in our pod have other social work, family and leisure related pods. And then our level of exposure would grow beyond what we are comfortable with. Let me go next to caller Nicole in San Jose. Hi, Nicole. Hi. Um, thank you so much for taking my call. You also read my uh, my comment, but I'm going to kind of uh, I'm a teacher, and um, I I feel that this um, this this issue is an indicator of like much larger problems like you're all discussing. And I'm wondering if one of the ways that we can solve this problem right now 
having some type of legislation or programs that are starting at the um, working with county boards of education and universities that have credentialing programs and streamlining, creating like a pipeline to be able to get in people who are already in credentialing programs and undergrad students into the classrooms to either be virtual or when they go into like phase two and phase three and all this other stuff. So teachers have like assistance. It's almost like a university model. So we're addressing kids getting that individualized attention. And I wonder if anybody is working on that because there's, this could be like a patriotic thing. Like I'm helping open the schools because I think the learning pods are in an, an expression of deep fear that people have every right to feel. So how do we address this as a um, as a social problem that we're all working together to solve? So I can take my answer. Uh, Nicole. Here. But thank you. So, yes, go ahead. Thank you so much. And, and Allison Collins, do you want to take a stab at that? Well, I think what she's saying is this issue is a bigger, you know, we have families that are struggling and they're, you know, looking around and what the resources they have. But I think this conversation itself, the fact that it's exploded over the last few weeks and is now across the country is an, is, is an evidence that we have a potential to, to mobilize this energy in making real change at the federal level or at the state level in how we resource and support our public education system. Because all through this this institution that has transparency, you know, and is it, it, it's the hub of all this all this work. Well, Allison Collins, I really appreciate you being on today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We're joined now by Lauren Holman, an online teacher at Sage Oak Charter Schools, a parent of two children in the San Marcos School District. Uh, Lauren, thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. So you've actually formed this learning pod without, say, a help from an agency like the one that Roman Slavinsky is part of. Can you describe what arrangement you've made? That's right. As soon as um, our governor um, proceeded with what we thought he was going to, which was to begin distance learning, a group of moms and I who had been communicating over the spring semester said, we just really can't do what we did over the spring semester. I have a brand new kindergartner coming in. I have a second grader. I work as well. Um, and so we decided to start brainstorming and see what we can do about creating our own little group. Our groups are small. It's in a controlled environment. It's a place that we all feel safe. Um, but we also really had to look at our own children's mental health and the fact that um, we didn't want to be their sole teacher as a parent uh, for this new semester because we did that last semester. We understand why it's happening, but at the same time, we want to make sure that they still have that socialization, especially for the younger ones, but really for all of the students, it's really important to get that socialization as well as the education. We're really fortunate that we do have a few um, parents that are credentialed teachers within our group, but at the same time, I know Janelle and Allison and Roman all spoke about this too. Um, we really need to work with our teachers. It's not parent versus teacher. We need to work together. We need to work as a community to make sure that these pods are successful for the school year. And do you worry about kids whose parents don't have the time or resources or work arrangements to enable them to do this, losing out, falling further behind? What, what's your reaction to sort of the equity concerns that have been raised around them? 
Yeah, well, there's been equity concerns in education for a very long time. Uh, having this pandemic and having to do distance learning is uh, amplifying these equity, the, uh, equity amongst all students everywhere. And you're just seeing more and more of these students that are going to have a really, really hard time, our homeless population, our English language learners. I know in our particular district, we have several English language learners, only 3% of them uh, filled out the survey about how they want to proceed with school coming back. A lot of their parents are essential workers. They don't have the time or the money to sit with their children during distance learning. So I really find that it's really important as a community and as uh, it's our duty really as parents to find these students and welcome them into our pods. So that way they have an equal opportunity as we do. We're not charging for our pods. Our pods are uh, you know, parent-based the teacher, we're going through our school district. So the teacher is the one that is assigning all of the assignments and we are just executing these assignments as parents. So I think it's really, really important to try to look beyond just your tiny little bubble of friends and see what parents, what students really need that additional help as well. And while you're not charging for the pods and, and there hasn't necessarily been a cost to you to have to hire teachers, and also it's great because it sounds like you're pooling the skills and talents of, of the parents with whom you're doing this together who have teaching skills. I, I imagine it must have, though, taken some time and effort to just set it up at all. It is. There's a lot. There's a lot of brainstorming, and there's a lot of logistics that we're still waiting for. Uh, our particular district doesn't really have a solid plan right now. Even the teachers don't exactly know how this uh, virtual and distance learning is going to look. So we're waiting a lot for what the teachers' expectations are of the students, and then our plan is to work around there. We need to be flexible with our kids. We want this to be a positive experience for our kids. We want it to be organized and we want our kids to look back at this and not be traumatized by this time in their lives. They're young. A lot of these students, uh, especially the smaller ones, they don't understand really what's going on. And so we want to try to make this as positive as possible for everybody. You know, one of the things that I read was that a lot of times it's the moms in marriages with a mom and dad who have had to really take on this uh, challenge of trying to augment their kids' education. Has that been your experience? Has it been mostly moms that you've been engaging with to make this happen? It's been almost all moms. I have to give the dads credit too, though. I have seen a lot of dads involved. Um, in our personal household, my husband also works from home. So we had to navigate both working from home and homeschooling our kids. Uh, I know across the board, whether moms are working, whether they're stay at home moms, they've all had to adjust. And it is, uh, seems to be at least that the moms are the ones kind of taking the reins, all that bears on our shoulders. I, if I could give any advice to the dads out there, the partners of, uh, you know, the, the caretakers, just see what you can do to kind of alleviate a little bit of that stress because you're right, it does fall a lot on the mom's shoulders. I know every mom in America right now is really worried about what's 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 to come this school year. And and Janelle Scott, I, I know you've been thinking a lot about this too, the gender parts of this. How do what role does that play, do you think? Well, I think there's no doubt that gender is um, incredibly important in this dynamic. Um, you know, teaching is a gendered profession in and of itself. 80% um, of the workforce is not only white, um, but a large share of those um, educators are women. And so the disrespect that education gets um, and the treatment in terms of prioritization that it gets, I think is inextricably linked to gender. But in terms of 
you know, in heterosexual households, we know that um, even when women work outside the home, they still bear um, the inordinate responsibility for um, childcare and household responsibilities. And we're seeing the effects of uh, this disproportionality in um, career trajectories for um, um, particular, in particular sectors in my own sector in academic um, settings and higher education, we're seeing publishing, academic publishing, for example, already some gender disparity happening as a result of um, academic women um, bearing the brunt of, of childcare. But I, I, I think it's always important to also cast our gaze to policy because we actually can mediate some of these concerns through policy. And in, in Congress in May, uh, the Child Care is Essential Act was introduced. And so I think as people are forming these pods, if they are determined to do that, I think they need to also keep their eye on broadening the policy framework so that all people uh, have access to quality, um, reliable childcare. So um, I, would, I would point our gaze not only to the pods, but also how we can use policy um, to make pods unnecessary. Well, Valeria writes, we have an incoming kindergartner into San Francisco Unified School District and are both essential workers working mostly outside the home. We're weighing our limited options. Rather than in a pod, our hopes rest primarily with a city program that will rescue us as they did in the spring when they quickly organized emergency child care for essential workers. This will mean a year of learning loss for my kid, but at least we can keep a roof over our head. We are deeply disappointed in the failure of imagination of the district and the school board to address this particular crisis. Robert writes, my concern would be taking my child out of her recognized school and having her fall behind by attempting to coordinate under an unknown timeline in an alternate tutoring micro-schooling. When normal schooling returns, how will these students reintegrate with the groups that have been doing their school's distance learning? I mean, Roman Slavinsky, it sounds like this is in part why you are recommending that parents, of course, do not leave their regular schooling and and why your program or, or better programs are ones that augment uh, what the schools are doing. Correct, because the biggest fear is that the kids that pull out of school, number one, it'll have an instant impact on the first day of public school instruction when you're expecting 24 kids to be in a class and there's only 18. And that would have further consequences in terms of like staffing for a school. But the, at the end of the day, we know that pods are a temporary solution. Kids need to go back to a real school with real socialization and interacting with peers and doing collaborative learning. So that's our view on like, they have to go with the public school curriculum that they're in. And we just help support it to help balance each family's individual situation. Well, let me go next to caller Sarah in San Francisco. Hi, Sarah. Hi, um, I am the parent of an incoming first grader in the in San Francisco Unified School District. And, um, you know, as it was, I think, for all parents at, at different degrees, you know, March through May was really difficult. I had to take part-time leave from my job so that I could um, be with my son. And even with even with that, um, he had some big, really big anxiety issues for a period in there that really kind of got in the way of learning and just everyday life. Um, so it was really hard, um, as it was for most people, I think. Um, I've been involved with a group of parents from our particular elementary school in San Francisco Unified trying to figure this out. But I just want to say, and this is becoming clear, more clear to me every day, as we try to take care of ourselves and our own needs and our own families, which is really important, we obviously, and as has been stated, we exclude families who don't have access to resources or who aren't in those 
those networks, those social networks, um, you know, because a lot of times those networks fall along racial and economic lines. And even as even if we try to do it across our school, my son goes to a Spanish immersion elementary school. Um, and there's really big differences between, you know, a lot of our monolingual immigrant Spanish speaking parents and some of the um, English speaking parents who are more white and um, and more better off um, economically. But even as we even if we try to bridge those gaps within our school, we have to remember that unintentionally without meaning to we're still reinforcing the inequities between poor and rich families and between families of color and white families across the whole district. I want to say thank you to Allison Collins for really digging into this issue. And I hope we can have a district-wide program together with the city to help all the families in San Francisco. Well, Sarah, thanks for your call. Matthew writes, regarding remote learning, school districts were responding to a crisis they were unprepared for. There was no playbook or resources for converting entire schools to remote learning. Teachers did the best they could to adapt classroom-oriented lesson plans. It would be unfair to evaluate the success of remote learning from what was essentially a crisis response. Janelle Scott, I mean, is this a moment to try to push schools to do better than they did in the spring? Is it even fair to, given all the constraints and issues that they're dealing with? Uh, it's it's not fair, but it's, it is it is necessary. And I think um, most reflective schools and schools school districts welcome critique and um, critical feedback from parents and uh, community members. I think what um, the, the comment is signaling is not only were districts responding to a crisis in the spring, but the crisis is ongoing. And anyone who's tried to plan their way out of a personal crisis that um, not only is ongoing, but has no end, we don't know when this is all going to end, can appreciate, I think, the stress um, and limitations that districts are under, and we still need to push them, right? It, education is very important. It's important for our democracy. It's important for our communities. Um, and as we're finding out all too painfully, it's important for our economy, right? Um, and so I do think districts uh, deserve scrutiny, but I also think they more importantly deserve our support. And, um, and, and that support can come in, in uh, many ways. And so I, again, I think if parents are committed to forming these pods, um, I think they also have to keep a dual eye on how they are helping to support district's ability to serve all students um, in, in equitable ways. I think that's our moral and ethical challenge as citizens. Well, Megan writes, I'm an educator in the San Francisco Unified School District, and I'm concerned that private learning pods are going to be set up in ways that put the public at the same risk of spread that bringing students into classrooms would. If public schools can't bring unrelated children together due to health and safety issues, how is it safe for private teachers to do this? Lauren Holman, would, could you respond to Megan? You mentioned that you were putting sort of certain structures in place to try to ensure safety. What are you doing? We are, uh, we're planning on holding our pods outdoors. I know that can't really happen all, you know, nationwide or even all throughout California. We're in San Diego, so we're lucky that for the most part, our weather is pretty good. Uh, we're still gonna promote social distancing, hand washing. We're gonna try our best to either meet in parks or the backyards of uh, other, you know, students' houses. And uh, really, I think our biggest thing is just limiting the amount of students that we're having in our pods. Uh, for our second graders, we don't want any more than seven or eight kids at a time. We're not planning on meeting five days a week, maybe four days a week, just having that limited interaction. But like I said before, I feel that 
a learning pod, uh, the benefits outweigh the risks as far as uh, mental health for our students because that one-on-one -on -one instruction with just mom or just dad or just older sibling, that's not necessarily going to work for everybody, for a lot of people. That's why these pods became so popular. Maybe people aren't feeling comfortable going back into an uncontrolled classroom environment of 25 or 30 kids, plus teachers, plus everybody's eating lunch together. Maybe they feel more comfortable with eight to 10 kids uh, in a smaller group outdoors. That way they can social distance a little easier and basically make it a more positive experience for these students. Well, Lauren Holman, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Lauren Holman, an online teacher at Sage Oak Charter School. She's also the parent of two children in the San Marcos School District in San Diego County. She formed learning pods for, for her children with their schoolmates. Uh, let me read a comment from this listener. Will pods with private teachers meet homeschool requirements? Is the California Department of Education monitoring this development? Uh, Roman Slavinsky, I think there are a lot of questions about credential teachers, licenses, also, you know, if parents want to make sure that that that's what they have, what should they be looking for? And do most programs ensure that they, you know, meet sort of the, the basic requirements from the state and their area? So it really depends, like with the current market for tutors, there's going to be somebody that's a college student or recent grad that might volunteer say, hey, I can tutor a group of kids. And obviously they don't have the pedagogy training. What we'd like for our staff is that the credential teachers, and you can check that up on the California Commission for Teacher Credentialing website. You can see exactly what those teachers are licensed to teach. You can check like substitute teachers have emergency credentials, but for the most part, we need teachers that have experience working with kids. And for our program, we're working directly with the teachers and the specific school site so that we are supporting what the teacher's goal, academic goals are for the kids. So definitely keeping a clear communication with the actual day-to-day -day teacher in the school. Well, Elizabeth in San Francisco, join us. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, uh, my question is, you know, this, this conversation is really ironic because at the beginning, you know, of this uh, shelter in place, the entire social media was filled with respect to the teaching profession and how do these teachers do it? Um, and really kind of uplifting the, the value that credentials teachers have. And now the conversation has switched to, we'll hire anyone to, to run these pods. Uh, I would say in the most cynical places, actually actively trying to recruit teachers away from the public school system by advertising a safer learning environment, which of course I think has been challenged on this conversation already. But the majority of the parent group, online groups that I'm part of, are truly discussing pulling their kids out of public schools, creating mini schools, sometimes multiple grades at a time, what happens when this all falls apart and halfway through October or halfway through November, parents are like, wait, this isn't a good idea. This isn't actually working. How is this, how is the school district then going to be prepared to absorb all these kind of failed pod um, examples or kind of experiments back into the system? I also am worried about this being a rushed process hmm. um, that is definitely is going to be disruptive in a different way down the line. Elizabeth, thanks. Janelle Scott, curious what you uh, think of what Elizabeth is raising here. Well, I think Elizabeth is raising a number of very important points. And I think, you know, I think the, the rush to form pods um, 
is such that some have formed and I think are active while some are still hypothetical. And so I think the, the um, question that was just raised is, yeah, there's a lot we don't quite know yet about how people are going to actually implement these um, after they uh, plan over the next several weeks. Um, I think there are incredible health risks, right? I mean, we've talked about the fact that um, uh, there is still a risk of transmission, um, even when people are being very careful. And so I think um, that is a big issue. I think um, some of what Roman talked about is also important in the sense that some people are forming pods to supplement uh, public school um, teaching and learning, and some are forming them to supplant, right? And that's a big difference. I think you know, public schools will always absorb um, people who move in and out of the sectors. And so certainly that will happen um, as people, um, if people are disappointed or have um, bad experience with pods. And so I would expect that those dynamics will be in play in the same way that they are in play um, when schools are face-to-face -face and parents are moving in and out of systems. Um, the trouble again is that we're doing all of this under sustained crisis and so yes. uh, we are asking public school districts to absorb quite a lot. Well, Alita writes, as a parent of three students in San Francisco Unified, all of whom receive special education services, I'm particularly worried about pods and outside tutoring when it comes to supporting kids with special needs and learning differences. Chris writes, as a public school teacher, I just want to say that fall will look different than last spring. Many of my high school students stopped coming to class when they found out they were not being graded. That will change. I worked very hard and was available for office hours regularly and was not accessed very much. I don't understand why parents are feeling that they are the teachers at this is an issue for the site as we teachers should be doing our part and be available for individual help. And then this listener writes, I'm a Montessori teacher in Oakland and have been approached to lead learning pods. I would challenge the comments of your guests. Public schools are not wonderful, beautiful institutions for children of color across the nation. I would encourage parents who are starting learning pods to push outside of their comfort zones and be mindful of who they didn't choose to join their pod and why. It's easy to tell yourself it's based on who I know and trust. Quickly, Janelle Scott, do you see these pods and some of the emotions and issues that they are actually almost making more clear? Having inspiring sort of broader systemic change for education, maybe how schools are funded, things like that? Uh, I think that the issues that they're raising could, but it, people have to follow through on that um, impulse, right? And so, you know, as I've been signaling, there are a number of pieces of legislation in Congress and in the state that could uh, speak to some of the inequities we see in schools and societies. And so people have to keep their eye on um, both balls. Well, Janelle Scott, Roman Slavinsky, thank you both. Judy Campbell produced today's segment. I'm Nina Kim. Thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments and for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.